Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following, following the following journey into comics. Journey into comics. It's a journey into comics. It's a journey into comics. Journey into comics. Journey into comics. Network. 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 Production. Production. We interrupt the Journey into Comics Network feed for this late-breaking edition of Poor News, featuring Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode ten of Poor News. Yes, the show that covers. All the political news and the rules going around the world. Happy Christmas, if you're listening to this, on Christmas Day. I understand if people are going to be waiting at Christmas Day or the Christmas season are kind of common days where people are usually busy. And with a government shutdown, who knows what you could be doing right now. But hopefully you're enjoying yourself, having fun with family and friends, and doing whatever you usually do on uh, days like today. I'm actually recording this in the early morning hours of Christmas Eve because I was kind of waiting to see you what else could happen before the holiday season and with stuff going along for uh, wedding planning and getting the house ready for Christmas and family coming in. It's just been kind of a whirlwind over here, but I wanted to want to bring you the news today. And one thing that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but it just kept kind of put in the wayside is the fact that I feel like everyone in America and really everyone in the world seems to be getting a lot more thin-skinned. Everyone keeps calling each other snowflake regarding regardless of what side you're on, what's going on, if you can't have a compelling argument against something happening, the other person is a snowflake for getting offended by whatever you're saying. I've seen people call liberal snowflakes, people call conservative snowflakes. I've just seen it just go back and forth. And are we all just snowflakes? Is everyone just getting too thin-skinned to put up with a Christmas song or a border wall or whatever it is that people are upset about? And don't get me started on this whole border wall thing or this GoFundMe where it's already raised like almost $5 million, which is funny enough, though, that I saw recently on Twitter that they said they were almost to $5 million, which is half of their $1 billion goal. So at least their math skills are on point, right, everyone? But like I said, I feel like everyone has just become so thin-skinned. I've watched so many interesting... Twitter posts that the comments will just get bloody and calling everyone a snowflake or entitled all this back and forth. And it's just nonsense. So I kind of wanted to do some digging to figure out why. Because, like, I brush a lot of this stuff off. It doesn't bother me. Like, the whole thing with um, Baby It's Cold Outside or so that. It's like, okay, it's a song from a different generation. You can't look at something from the past and putting it in modern content. If someone tried to re-release a new version of that song, sure, then be upset about it. But the 40s was a different... I think that's when it came out, the 40s. It's been quite a long time ago. It's like taking offense to a Peanuts comic strip from 1952. Cool, you don't like it, but it was, it's been 60 years. Just calm down. I don't know. But I feel like just everyone is getting so thin-skinned. I don't get what the point is. Just don't worry about it if it's not a big deal don't make a big deal out of it people just keep making mountains out of molehills and i think we just need to move forward and not nitpick or fight about the small stuff and focus on the big stuff 
We're almost into 2019. That's where our focus should be. Not about this little inner squabbling about things that don't really matter. I don't know. That's just my two cents. I got two articles here I'm going to talk about that I feel encompasses that I'm going to go into since the end of the year, some 2018 year in review, and then kind of transition out of it. So, yeah. So this will be the last poor news of 2018. 2019 is going to bring some big changes to myself and probably the network as a whole, but we'll kind of see where that ball lays after we play it. So, but jumping in, this is an article I found from, these are both from early this year because I was trying to find an article that kind of talked about it. This is an article from the Daily Campus uh, by Karen Blownstein. It says, either everyone is a snowflake or none of us are. This is an opinion article. I just found it kind of interesting. Um, so let's see. Uh, Linda Sarsour, a social activist and women's march organizer, was invited to speak at UConn Women's Center on Wednesday, March 7th. While the event was canceled at the last minute due to weather conditions, it triggered a great deal of controversy on campus. The event's main focus is the women's right and advocacy for gender equality. So Sarah Sarah, a co-chair of the 2017 Women's March, was a well-suited speaker to host. It's important to recognize and emphasize her progressive bona fides, but to also recognize the disapproving of her advocacy does not make an individual opposed to all of her views. Sarsour's relatively popular views regarding the Women's March and against racially Racially profiling terrorism are not the reason for controversy, but are advocacy towards more sensitive political topics. Most of the disagreement with Sarsour comes from her aggressive anti-Israel beliefs, which is highly likely to directly offend or threaten Israeli students and Jewish life on campus. Taking into account the bold anti-Semitic incidents taken on campus, especially one that took place in September of 2017 near the Hillel House, a car drove by a student near Hillel on campus, and the girl sitting on the back seat yelled, derogatory comments at a student wearing a kippah. Not sure what a kippah is, but okay. With aggressive encounters like this occurring, it's important that the university's administration ensure that every student feels safe and comfortable when a speaker with radical views like Sarsour is invited to speak. Similarly to Ben Shapiro, views held by Sarsour pose a threat to students, which should be taken seriously by the university. The administration made the decision to send out emails offering the full support of mental health services with the arrival ship here, they should have done the same for Sarsour. Otherwise, the university is presenting a bias in the support it offered to the student body. And while some students feel safe and welcome, some may feel even more threatened. Expressing radical views should not be banned on or avoided on campus, but fairly conducted to optimize student safety on campus. With this in mind, it also is also very natural for people to be offended by many political views especially in a college environment. The term snowflake, for example, is a strategy used by radical speakers to delegitimize the offenses taken by people who disagree with or are threatened by their beliefs. Despite popular belief, this notion goes both ways, liberal and conservatives. The conflict between these two groups has grown beyond political discrepancies and towards outright uh, detestation of one another, which inevitably leads to labeling and profiling individuals who take offense from a given argument. Instead of accusing those who are offended by a given view of being too sensitive and labeling them snowflakes, people with opposing views should focus on advocating their beliefs without attacking the opposition. In reality, a person cannot be distinguished as a snowflake because everyone can take offenses from everything. If people who are threatened by radical arguments are snowflakes, then everyone is a snowflake. A person that is not threatened by anything simply does not exist, and a belief is not a belief if it is universally agreed or disagreed upon. Rather than labeling those who take offense from certain radical beliefs, Institutions should ensure safety despite the presence of radicalism and that individuals who are threatened are fully supported and have a place where their violences are heard, or their voices are heard. 
Now, I there's good takeaways. Like the last couple paragraphs of this lessons, I really don't think there should be like emotional support services when a speaker that you disagree with comes on campus. That seems a little extreme, a little like coddling someone who's at least 18 to 22 if they're on a college campus and should be grown enough to handle a large speaker. Yes, people shouldn't be inflamed or justified in doing um, actions if they were kind of feel empowered by that speaker. That's a whole other thing. But I feel like like I've when I was in college, speakers came to campus. I sat in the audience of two um, Republican candidates of the twenty twelve election cycle. Uh, Mitt Romney came to my campus, and I sat through that. And Rick Santorum came to campus, and I or not camp, he came to the city I was in, and I went to that. Just wasn't pro. I just I've never sat in on a presidential speech and. Republican Cancelone, who came, actually, I think, went to three of the four Republican candidates at the time. I went with, saw Romney, um, Romney Santorum, um, Ron Paul, because he went to U of I and I was close enough to it. Only one I didn't see was Newt Gingrich at the time, but it's Newt Gingrich who really cares. But that was kind of, uh, like, you can see people you disagree with. I remember... When I was sitting next to, I was sitting next to a friend at the time at that Mitt Romney um, speech, and the person who was a friend of mine um, had a question for him. And looking back, it was kind of a little embarrassing just because of the what it did. But um, she stood up and said, um, "You talk about um, making people happy, or the." happy life for Americans, and she said, no, what would be happy would be free birth control, and he said something to the effect of, if you want free birth control, go with the other guy. I personally don't think birth control should be free. I, that's just my two cents. I, nothing should be free. Maybe it shouldn't be taxed the same way everything else is, the same way like the pink tax is going around about how feminine hygiene products shouldn't be taxed, but I feel like everything is taxed, so I don't know, but Maybe it shouldn't be taxed, but I don't think it should be free by any means, or... That's just my two cents. But, it's embarrassing, but, like, everyone's entitled to their opinion, and you shouldn't be able to delegitimize their opinion based on your opinion. It's just kind of how I feel about it. But, I don't know, a lot of people are just thin-skinned, so they'll find issues with that, or people... Regarding the, like, Planned Parenthood, people are upset about that. It's just... I don't know. Things are just... People are just too upset about certain things. Uh, here's another article from the Californian. Um, America has become a nation of victims. The land of the free and the home of the brave is now the land of the aggrieved and the home of the picked on. The modern United States is no longer e pluribus unum. Sadly, it's become, hey, I was wrong to get my lawyer on the phone. Or recently, south of the Mason-Dixon line, let's grab clubs and tiki torches and go make trouble. America has become a nation of victims. The people who, a decade ago, might have scoffed at the idea that others who were victimized by societal norms, generational poverty, and institutional racism now have, have now themselves joined the pity party and donned the cloak of victimhood. Nursing a grudge is now not just for minorities. Sorry, my article kind of freaked out for a second. Gotta love ads. America's now become a nation of victims. The same people who a decade ago might have scoffed the idea that others were being victimized... Oh, I kind of read that part already. Nursing grudges are not just 
for minorities anymore. Conservative white males have gotten in on the act. As they rail against globalization, corporate greed, immigration, political correctness, the anti-confederate statue lobby, affirmative action, and the man in the moon. Those over years shrugged off the notion that they were lingering racial and ethnic, dis ethnic discrimination against Latinos and African Americans now insist that they are rampant reverse discrimination against white people. As they often do, politicians make the situation worse by giving people easy outs. And these days, as always, many people are glad to have excuses for their failures, setbacks, and shortcomings. The bad guys are the banks, the rich, the corporations, the immigrants, the global market. Victim anthems have been penned by Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, who in concert introduced his haunting ballad Youngstown about the battered town in northeast Ohio as a story about losing everything even when you work hard and play by the rules. A couple of generations ago, America survived tough times by hustling, believing in themselves and working harder. Today, this is the pep talk for the downtrodden. Lost your job? The, corporate, the culprit is a racial quota or greedy boss or foreign worker. You're the victim. That's a major takeaway from recent events in Har Charlottesville, Virginia. This is obviously a dated article. Uh, hundreds of young white men who intoxicated by a cocktail of entitlement and white privilege expected to be running the country by now instead feel as the country is running over them. They worry that a society that pushes diversity, espouses liberalism, and worship at the altar of political correctness doesn't have any room for them, and the last thing they want to do is look in the mirror and take responsibility for their own lives. So they picked up torches in March and shouted, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. This rank bigotry and anti-Semitism made other people feel victimized because they somehow thought they had a right to go through life without ever being offended by anything. The offended staged counter-protests, which made the original protesters feel victimized as if their right to free speech were being violated, and so on. The land of the free and the home of the brave is now the land of the grieved and the home of the picked on. The transformation is much more important than the question that captivates the attention of the left and the media, as if there were a difference at this point. Do we have a white supremacist in the White House? A lot of my Latino and African American friends are convinced we do, but I think they're wrong. What do they know? Some of them said the same thing about every Republican president since Ronald Reagan while turning a blind eye to outright racists in the Democratic Party. Also, Donald Trump has been in the public eye for more than 30 years, donating money to the civil rights groups, posing for pictures with Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, and supporting Democrats. I personally never heard anyone say he was a racist or a white supremacist until he became a Republican. That smells fishy. Besides, Trump presidency has an expiration date. In a few years, we'll wake up from this national nightmare. It's the culprit of victimhood that America should really be worried about. It wasn't just Trump, white supremacists, the media, local police, and activists on the militant left who emerged from the Charlottesville fiasco with their reputation sullied. The American spirit also took a terrible beating. We did. When did the greatest country on earth stop being a place where people with nothing but hunger for a second chance come, could come to work hard and build a new life? When did it become a place where everyone pushes their own set of grievances? As an American, none of the this makes sense. I thought we were made from healthier stock. There's, like, the previous article, this article has some stuff I disagree with, but at this point, you can't blame another set of people, another group, something that makes you, you can't make yourself the victim. I had friends growing up and in college who always felt they were the victim, regardless of the situation they were in, that there has to be a reason for why things aren't going their way. And I feel like that's a lot of what people in this country are feeling right now. People feel like they need some reason that like it's not just you did something wrong it's that something has happened to you and that's your reason for this problem i always think back to that uh that old south park 
bit that I think they've brought up. I'm very behind on South Park. I've, I've never really regularly watched the show, but it's that whole the guy going "Take our jabs, take our jabs." Yeah, but they being like immigrants or people who are just taking your jobs. But I think in there that episode it was the illegal aliens were actual aliens or people from the future. I don't really remember, but people got to stop being victims or playing the victim card to get their way. It's like when, I don't know, I just am kind of sick of everyone being so thin-skinned. People just need to grow up, have a good sense of an argument, and if it, your argument point is not being proven, you can't just attack the other person or bring up stuff from the past. Like, 2016 is not an excuse anymore for your behavior, how you think something is going. 2016 is in the past. 2018 is about to be in the past. You just need to grow up and move forward in 2019 Put your head on straight and let's go forward. I think that's done with my ranting for today. And let's talk about 2018 in review. Because, like I said, 2018 is about over. A lot of stuff has happened. A lot of stuff you probably forgot happened this year. Because a lot has happened in 2018. Now I have... I believe two or three articles here that kind of summarize 2018. At least in the Trump and political sphere. As well as... uh, Kind of the year of media in review. And since... This is a podcast that covers the news, is technically part of the media. It kind of is worth sharing as well. So, this is a New York Times article. This is 2018 Review, The High and Lows of Trump's Year. For President Trump, 2018 has been a year of perpetual motion. He's right over a near constant turmoil, and he's increasingly relied on his own instincts. In just the last week, the flurry of activity has rocked the government, the military, and the markets. Two of our White House correspondents write, At the midpoint of his term, Mr. Trump has grown more sure of his own judgment and more cut off from anyone else's than at any point since taking office. Here is a look at major events and some high, some low, that have undoubtedly shaped Mr. Trump's thinking heading into 2019. In January, surprise, surprise, the government shut down for three days starting at 12.01 a.m. on January 20th. Days later, Mr. Trump delivered his first State of the Union address. Balking at an immigration deal, Mr. Trump asked lawmakers in the Oval Office why there were so many people from shithole countries coming into the United States rather than from places like Norway. I totally forgot that was in 2018. It's been such a mess of a year. In February, Michael Cohen, Mr. Trump's longtime personal lawyer, said that he had paid $130,000 out of his own pocket to Stormy Daniels, a pornographic film actress who had claimed to have had an affair with Mr. Trump. Also in February, a gunman opened fire at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, killing 17 people. House Republicans released a secret memo accusing the Russian investigators of bias. The government shut down again, this time only for a few hours. Hope Hicks, the White House communications director, told House investigators that her work for Mr. Trump had occasionally required her to tell white lies. A day later, she announced her resignation. In March, Mr. Trump, defying opposition from his own party and protests from overseas, signed orders imposing stiff and sweeping new tariffs on imported steel and aluminum. God, I remember that and the whole rising of alcohol prices when we need it most. Um, Also in March, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was fired to be replaced by Mike Pompeo, and H.R. McMaster, the President's National Security Advisor, was forced out and replaced by John R. Bolton. The March for Our Lives rally, one of hundreds of protests held across the world, took place in Washington to call for action on gun violence. The special counsel, Robert S. Mueller III, Mueller, sorry, subpoenaed the Trump Organization to turn over documents including some related to Russia. John Dowd resigned as Mr. Trump's lead lawyer for the special counsel investigation. 
In April, Mr. Trump denied knowledge of hush payments to Stormy Daniels. The FBI raided Mr. Cohen's office in Ottawa, and Mr. Trump called it disgraceful. The United States, Britain, and France launched airstrikes against Syria over suspected chemical weapon attack. Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook chief, testified on data privacy and other issues before Congress. In May, Mr. Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. He also revamped his legal team for the Russia investigation. The American embassy in Israel was moved to Jerusalem the same day mass protests along the Gaza border raged anew. The Department of Homeland Security enacted a zero-tolerance immigration policy causing the forced separation of migrant families at the border. In June, outrage over the separation policy swept the country, prompting the administration to launch an aggressive defense. Under enormous political pressure, Mr. Trump signed an executive order meant to end family separation. Also, Mr. Trump met with Kim Jong-un, the North Korea's leader in Singapore, and discussed eliminating the North's nuclear arsenal. In July, the special counsel issued an indictment of 12 Russian intelligence officers in the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton presidential campaign. During a news conference in Helsinki, Finland, Mr. Trump stood next to President Vladimir Putin of Russia and publicly challenged the conclusion of his own intelligence agencies that Moscow interfered in the 2016 presidential election. Many Republicans were not pleased with the performance. A lot of them criticized his remarks. Scott Pruitt, the EPA chief, resigned under a cloud of ethics scandals. Judge Brett Kavanaugh was nominated by Mr. Trump to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court, left by the retirement of Justice Anthony M. Kennedy. In August, Paul Manafort, Mr. Trump's former campaign chairman, was convicted of five counts of tax fraud, two counts of bank fraud, and one count of failure to close a foreign bank account. Also in August, Senator John McCain of Arizona died at 81. Mr. Trump was not invited to the funeral. While the president was absent from Washington National Cathedral, he was a clear point of contrast to the former senator. Mr. Cohen, pleading guilty to the litany of crimes, said in court that Mr. Trump had directed him to arrange payments to two women, including Stormy Daniels, during the 2016 campaign to keep them from publicly speaking about the affair they said they had with Mr. Trump. Federal prosecutors affirmed this months later. September, after a month, after an initial round of confirmation hearings, Judge Kavanaugh reappeared on Capitol Hill to testify about the allegations of sexual misconduct. One accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, also delivered emotional testimony. I still like the SNL bit involving Matt Damon about that. It was pretty funny. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh was confirmed by the Senate to the Supreme Court. The Trump administration, Mexico, and Canada negotiated a new trade deal to replace NAFTA, called the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. Still a mouthful. Still don't like the title. A member of the Trump administration, identifying himself or herself as a senior official, wrote an opinion article for the New York Times claiming to be a member of the resistance in the administration. Also in September, Hurricane Florence thrashed the East Coast, particularly the Carolinas. In October, Jamal uh, Khashoggi, a columnist for the Washington Post who was critical of the Saudi Arabia's rulers, was killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The United States unemployment rate dropped to 3.7%. Hurricane Michael slammed into the Florida Panhandle. Eleven people were killed when a gunman shouting anti-Semitic slurs opened fire at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. A man in Florida was arrested in connection with a wave of mail bombs that targeted people critical of Mr. Trump, including former President Barack Obama, former Vice President Joseph Biden, the actor Robert De Niro, and CNN. In November, a wildfire in Northern California became the deadliest in the state's history. Mr. Cohen pleaded guilty to lying to Congress, and said Mr. Trump had been more involved in discussions over a potential Russian business deal during the presidential campaign than previously known. 
Also in November, Democrats won control of the House, picking up 40 seats in the midterm elections. Attorney General Jeff Sessions was forced out of his post. Matthew G. Whitaker stepped in as the acting Attorney General. The next month, Mr. Trump nominated William P. Barr for the job. Also, the 41st President George Bush died at age 94. Mr. Trump was invited to the funeral, but did not speak. In December, the First Step Act, a criminal justice overhaul, passed with bipartisan support. Days before the deadline for a new spending bill, Mr. Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Chuck Schumer, and Representative Nancy Pelosi agreed greeted journalists in the Oval Office for a photo opportunity that morphed into an extraordinary on-camera policy debate. It's actually pretty entertaining to watch. Mr. Trump announced that John F. Kelly, the chief of staff, would leave the administration. Mick Mulvaney, his budget director, would fill the post as acting chief of staff. Ryan Zinke, the interior secretary, was also ousted. Mr. Trump abruptly ordered the removal of American troops from Syria and a drawdown of forces in Afghanistan. The next day, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis resigned, writing Mr. Trump a letter saying the president deserved a defense secretary whose views were, quote-unquote, better aligned with his. Uh, mirroring sharp declines in other stock markets, the tech-heavy Nasdaq entered bear territory down almost 22% from its August peak, which is quite a lot for that market. Uh, the government partly shut down for the third time this year after Mr. Trump made clear he would not accept a spending bill that did not include $5 billion in funding for a wall along the southern border. And speaking of the wall, I have to address this GoFundMe again. I talked about it at the beginning of the show, but this GoFundMe that's raised $5 million through GoFundMe that someone just started, just someone out of the blue, which I've read into, for one, GoFundMe claims like 20% of the take. Maybe it's not 20%, but it, it takes a percentage as a part of its existence. So let's get a nice chunk of change. And this person who gets the money can't really just write a check to the government. Like, it can donate to people in the government, but you can't just be like, here's $5 million or $10 million. Just, here you go, just take it. Like, no, that's not how this works. But some people have been so... Probably like, like Mr. Trump started it himself that, oh, I'm going to donate $5,000, $10,000, a couple hundred dollars. Because people are just throwing money at this thing. Like, Mr. Trump can take this money and be like, all right, here's your wall. I'm going to put your names on it. Maybe Mr. Trump started a Kickstarter where you can get a, your own brick signed or something. I don't know. That's just ridiculous. This People are just so believe. It's like giving money to an African prince who just needs your social security number and your bank information. And he can give you all the riches beyond your dreams when this is all over. It's just, I, just dumb and stupid. And people shouldn't be spending their hard-earned money this time of year on that. Especially with the whole IRS thing, everyone's probably going to get hit hard with back taxes from all of the stuff made with the rewriting of the tax code right before the tax year started in 2018. So, yeah, don't be doing that. People are regretting that come April 14th, 15th, I can't remember. Whatever that date is in April, you have to file your taxes by. That's one article on 2018 Review. The other one, which is from USA Today, um... I think this one goes by state, which is a little bit different. So, in 2018, the eyes of the nation were again fixed on President Donald Trump, whose second year in office was no less remarkable than his first. It was the year that saw the president open up trade wars, meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, spar with the press, and defend hush money payments to worse women he allegedly had affairs with. All while new revelations and indictments poured out to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian election meddling. 
Policies and politics divided us. We found ourselves embroiled in a fierce immigration debate. Trump's report nominee Brett Kavanaugh sent into the high court, despite sexual allegations from Christine Blasey Ford. Nature humbled us. California burned as the campfire became the most destructive in state history. Hurricane winds and floods battered the Carolinas, but other stories made us proud. Team USA brought home 23 Olympic medals from Pyeongchang, South Korea, and teachers fought for better pay. Now, to be totally honest, I kind of forgot there was an Olympics this year. Completely didn't have any on the radar. Like, when I read this day, I was like, oh yeah, that did happen this year. 2018's just been a year full of craziness and so much news that an, a big headline that would have been running for a week's five, six years ago now can be gone in a 48-hour news cycle. We exercised our rights voting in the most tumultuous midterms in years. Democrats gained control of the House. Republicans expanded their Senate majority, and voters made history, ushering into Congress many firsts for women and minorities. Then we end the year with a solemn goodbye, funeral services for George H.W. Bush. We're fair not only to a former president, but also to a generation. And I've actually been reading this book, The Last Republicans. It's a story about George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush highlighting the last... The last Republicans in a pre-Trumpian world. Um, a lot of the Republican Party post-Trump is going to be a radically different than we saw in the previous Republican administration. So it's a really interesting read, and it's a little bit biography, a little bit uh, political. And it's it's I'm enjoying it so far. It's been a slow read because I just haven't had the time to really get into it, and I'm doing it as an audiobook that's on CD, so I'm only listening to it in the car. But that's beside the point. Um... Back into this one. After another eventful year, USA Today revisits one story from each state that moved us, the big news, the big investigations, and the moments we can't stop talking about. In Alabama, Jeff Sessions, the Russia investigation's high-profile White House departures. The former Alabama senator, beleaguered tenure as U.S. Attorney General, finally ended November, one day after the midterm elections. While Sessions was one of the President Donald Trump's earliest supporters, he was braided by the commander-in-chief for accusing himself from the rush from the investigation in Russia meddling of the 2016 presidential elections. Sessions' departure was just one of the many notable firings and resignations from the Trump administration in 2018, including Chief of Staff John Kelly and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. As for the Russia investigation, Trump has denied wrongdoing and repeatedly called Special Counsel Robert Mueller's looming investigation a witch hunt. Earlier this month, Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, was sentenced to three years in federal prison, the first sentencing for a member of the president's inner circle and the one that could hold legal perils for Trump. In Alaska, a massive quakes turned disaster into a learning experience. A magnitude 7.0 earthquake that struck near Anchorage on November 30th sliced open roads, knocked out power, and damaged buildings. Over 3,000 aftershocks have rattled the region, though no deaths or serious injuries were reported. Meanwhile, recovery efforts made more difficult by the cold have become the envy of the nation after work crews repaired major road damage within four days after the quake. Delivery of food, supplies, fuel, and other cargo had not been interrupted, according to officials who said the crews will would do the majority of their work in the summer to ensure long-term sustainability. In Arizona, you're telling me that my assault doesn't matter, contentious Kavanaugh hearings. Christine Blasey Ford testified with quiet, measured emotion that Brett Kavanaugh forced her onto a bed and tied her to remove and tried to remove her clothes at a party when both were teens. Kavanaugh yelled, cried, and interrupted when it was his turn in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. A day later, a protest who said she was sexually assaulted approached outgrowing Republican Arizona Senator Jeff Flake in an later, You're telling me the man's salt doesn't matter, the audibly emotional women told Flake. The moment seemed to matter as if it was Flake alongside Senator Chris Coons who called for a week-long FBI investigation. Ultimately, Kavanaugh was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
in Arkansas. Viral photos show a brother saying goodbye too soon. An Arkansas family tragic photo captured the heart of nations in June as it showed the moment a brother said goodbye to his dying little sister. Adeline Scooter Ford lost her battle with a rare brain tumor, but her siblings got one last chance to spend time together. Jackson Sick rubbed his sister's head as she grasped his hand. Then Jackson said goodnight. Addie was Jackson's playmate, his best friend, his little sister, father. Matt Suter wrote on Facebook, This isn't how it's supposed to be. The condition worsened the rare tumor took her life hours later. The family found hope. She wasn't in any pain at the end, her father wrote. Well, that's just heartbreaking. Um, in California, wildfires devastate the Golden State. 6,228 wildfires, over 876,000 acres charred, at least 100 deaths. California was devastated by historic blazes this year, which will likely impact the state for decades. In Northern California, the campfire, the deadliest and most destructive in state history, killed nearly three times as many people as the Griffith Park Fire, a record that stood for 85 years. And the worst may yet to come, according to a new study, wildfires in California may be more commonplace with a brutal combination of hot and dry weather linked to climate change. <laughs> Meanwhile, homeowners affected by the deadly blaze face dilemmas on whether tree build in high-risk areas repeatedly ravaged by fires. In Colorado, most... Inhumane and vicious crime. No parole for dad who killed pregnant wife and two kids. Christopher Watts gave an emotional TV interview the day after his pregnant wife and her daughters were reported missing in August, pleading for their safe return. Shortly after he was arrested and charged in their gruesome deaths, Watts drove the bodies to an oil field and buried his wife in a shallow grave. He shoved Bella and Celeste in two separate oil tanks, pushing their bodies through openings that were only eight inches in diameter. In November, the suburban Denver dad was sentenced to three consecutive life terms in prison at 84 additional years with no possibility of parole. In Connecticut, teacher fired for running student fight club. Entirely missed this article. A former substitute teacher at a Connecticut high school was fired and faced charges after police discovered he was running a fight club inside of his math class. Ryan Fish, 23, encouraged high school students in Montville to physically battle as students recorded the fights and cheered. Police became involved when a social worker reported a 15-year-old student was traumatized after being robbed and beaten by his classmates. Fish was fired from his position at the school and faced felony and misdemeanor charges associated with child endangerment. Those charges will be dropped if Fish completes the state's accelerated rehabilitation program, a judge ruled in October. In Delaware, virtually left... Virtually lets chemo patients ditch sterile hospitals for tranquil woods. As poison dripped into her veins, Kathleen Krakowski... Her birds chirping and watched leaves sway in the wind. Krakowski, a breast cancer patient, sat in chemotherapy at the Helen F. Graham Cancer Center Research Institute in Newark, but she gazed into a serene forest with virtual reality headset. Doesn't look fake at all, she said. Patients could sit on the beach or admire a mountainside, forgetting, if only for minutes, the sterile hospital room and deadly illness nurses said. More health-focused VR programs are coming to ease challenges for women in labor and those in chronic pain, too. VR companies VR Health and Oculus announced in September. In Florida, they witnessed a mass shooting at school, then they marched for their lives. Parkland became a site of a mass school shooting when former student killed 17 people, including students. A football coach and athletic director at Marjorie Stoneman, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day. Police arrested Nicholas Cruz, who now faced the death penalty, among other charges. Cruz was known to police who had received 18 calls between 2008 and 2017 warning about him. Some directly concerned about him opening fire at school amid criticism an armed school resource officer who never went into the school during the shooting retired, but Parkland students emerged from the tragedy, fueling a movement in marches against gun violence. Across the nation, that all started NRA-backed candidates in midterm elections. 
The students were recently awarded a Global Peace Prize and praised as true change makers. In Georgia, Bryant Kemp wins and Stacey Abrams sues. When many Americans were asking who to vote for on election day, claims of voters' suppression left some Georgians asking whether their votes would be counted fairly. In a close race, Democrat Stacey Abrams vied to become the nation's first black woman governor. While Republican Brian Kemp sought to maintain his party's control of the office, Kemp won, but both sides claimed foul play by the other. Abrams accused Kemp of trying to suppress Democratic votes as a Secretary of State by removing voters from the rolls. Kemp's office said it was investigating Democrats for what it called a failed attempt to hack the registration system. The fight isn't over, as an Abrams-backed group recently filed a federal lawsuit asking the judge to order fixes to what it says are deep-seated problems in the state's election system. In Hawaii, uh, false alarms and ballistic missiles alert rattles Hawaii. Hawaiians were sent scrambling one January morning after emergency alert notification went warned of an incoming ballistic missile threat. Residents and vacationers ran for cover and called loved ones thinking death was imminent. The only problem, their alert was an error. Officials knew within three minutes that the error had happened, but it took 38 minutes to send one of the false alarm messages. The unsettling notification came after months of aggressive rhetoric from North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, who had threatened to strike the United States. President Donald Trump later met Kim discussing denuclearization at the much-hyped summit in Singapore. Much hyped summit in Singapore. A historic handshake between the two represents the first time a sitting U.S. president met with a North Korean leader and a major breakthrough in decades of tensions. In Idaho, inspiring photos show an Idaho boy's simple patriotic gesture. Idaho boy was who protected the American flag with his body stirred the patriotism of the nation in September. Fiskater Jack Lebrecht lay on the ground under the flag as two other boys struggled to fold it on a windy day. The moment of respect was captured by a passerby who shared the image to Facebook, where it soon made national headlines. The image was so iconic that some questioned its authenticity. Was it staged? Some asked photographer and Facebook user Amanda Raylan. Most certainly was not. The boy had no idea I was taking the photo. She said, they took it upon themselves to protect the flag. Illinois. He was stopping a gunman at a bar. He was shot by police anyway. Jamel Roberson was doing his job when a suburban Chicago police officer fatally shot him. The 26-year-old armed guard who was black had detained a suspected gunman at the bar where he worked and was waiting for police to help when an officer who was white opened fire on him. Police say the officer ordered Robertson to drop his gun. Witness said they shouted that Robertson was a security guard. Uh, Robertson's death prompted cries for justice from civil rights advocates in a federal lawsuit filed by his mother against the still unnamed police officer in uh, Midlothian, where the officer is from, and his death was just one of the hands of police in 2018. In Indiana, aftershocks from Larry Nassar upend USA Gymnastics. Uh, the fallout from the sexual abuse committed by Larry Nassar further engulfed Indianapolis-based USA Gymnastics in 2018, threatened to swallow up top executives at the sport governing body itself criminal cases ended in February against Nassar, the former USA Gymnastics doctor convicted of sexually assaulting um, gymnasts. USA Gymnastics CEO resigned September, forcing out under heavy criticism. The organization filed for bankruptcy protection in December, sagging under the weight of lawsuits from survivors of Nassar's abuse. The next week, the chief of the U.S. Olympics Committee was fired after a report found both the committee and USA Gymnastics failed to adopt appropriate child protective policies to prevent abuse. In Iowa, Molly Tibbetts went missing. Her story gripped a nation. Molly Tibbetts was last seen running along Boundary and Middle Streets in her hometown, uh, Brooklyn. On June, July 18th, surveillance footage showed the 20-year-old University of Iowa student was reported missing the next day, sparking a monolith 
a month-long search that gripped Americans from Iowa to the White House. I just want Molly's family to know you're on the hearts of every American, Vice President Mike Pence said August 15th. Authorities found her body in a cornfield southeast of Brooklyn six days later and charged uh, Christian Rivera, a 24-year-old Mexican national with first-degree murder. Rivera was led who led police to the body, said he blocked his memory after pursuing Tibbetts during her run. He pled not guilty to the charge. In Kansas, armed officer adopted Korean daughter forced to leave U.S. A South Korean-born teenager who was adopted by her aunt and uncle in Kansas will soon be forced out of the country. Now retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Patrick uh, Schreiber and his wife Sujin delayed a formal adoption of daughter Haibin. In large part because Schreiber, a 27-year-old Army veteran, was deployed in Afghanistan where he served as an intelligence officer. Following poor legal advice, the parents formally adopted their daughter a year too late when she was 17, one year after the cutoff for a foreign-born child to drive citizenship from an American. According to immigration law, in September, a federal judge said the girl must leave the country immediately after she graduates Kansas University. The family said if their daughter is deported, they will move to South Korea. Uh, in Kentucky, it is such... A shock. Two die in shooting in Kroger grocery store. Minutes after trying to break into a predominantly black church, a shooter gunned down two black shoppers at a Kroger grocery store in Jefferson Town in October. The suspect, Gregory Bush, was charged with federal hate crimes and reportedly told another man who shot at him in the store's parking lot, Don't shoot me. I won't shoot you. Whites don't shoot whites. The community mourned the deaths of Vicki Lee Jones, 67, and Maurice E. Stollard, 69, who was shopping with his grandson at the time of the shooting. In the Louisiana, mother keeps dying in childbirth. The simple solution is ignored. More than 50,000 American women are severely injured during childbirth each year. About 700 die. Why? Medical workers skip safety practices known to head off disaster. And the deadliest state for pregnant women and new mothers is Louisiana, where, according to the USA Today investigation, deadly deliveries, there was 58.1 deaths for every 100,000 births in the Pelican State from 2012 to 2016. Half of these deaths could be prevented. Best estimates say that and have the injuries reduced uh, or prevented with better care. Through our investigation, USA Today contacted 75 hospitals in 13 states to ask if they followed certain nationally recognized safety practices. Half wouldn't answer. Uh, in Maine, smoked lobster, a restaurant tries marijuana to ease crustacean pain. At Charlotte's legendary lobster pound, your lobster might get smoked before it gets steamed. The restaurant in Southeast Harbor experimented with using marijuana to ease lobster's pain before the steaming process. Owner Charlotte Gill said she tried it with a lobster named Roscoe, placing him in a covered box with two inches of water as marijuana smoke was pumped inside. Gal Gill said Roscoe was more calm following the smoke out. Pete is not convinced, though. There is well-established foolproof way to prevent crustaceans mm -hmm. from suffering, though, and that's not by and that's by not eating them. Okay, telling Maine people not to eat lobster. Sure. In Maryland, it's like a war zone, but they still put out a damn paper. The shooting was like a Warzone 5 newspaper. Employees were killed when a gun with a grudge opened fire on the Capitol Gazette in, the Annap in Annapolis. The victims, assistant editor and columnist Rob Hiasen, special publications editor Wendy Winters, writer John McNamara, editorial page editor uh, Gerald Fishman, and sales assistant Rebecca Smith, Gerard Ramos, now charged with five murder counts, had sued the paper over a 2011 article about his guilty plea for harassment. It unleashed vitriol on social media against the paper and the staff for years. But the tragedy didn't stop Capital Gazette journalists from doing their jobs and their colleagues 
who had been killed in putting out a damn paper the next day. In December, they, along with murdered Saudi Arabian writer Jamal Khashoggi and other journalists, were named as Times Person of the Year. In Massachusetts, uh, hidden dangers lurk underneath from aging gas pipes. The natural gas industry and government regulators have known of the dangers of leaking gas pipelines for decades. Repairing those pipes uh, is not only difficult and expensive, but also sometimes perilous. In September, utility crews upgrading cast iron pipes inadvertently caused fire and explosions in three northern Massachusetts towns, killing one person, injuring 21, and leaving hundreds homeless. Investigators say Columbus gas, or Columbia Gas issued faulty work orders that contributed to the blast. The Merrimack Valley, the area north of Boston, shaken by explosions and served by more some of the nation's oldest and most leak-prone pipes, according to the USA Today analysis, the explosion could sp- become the most expensive natural gas disaster even for a utility that was already spending $80 million this year to upgrade an aging infrastructure. In Michigan, Aretha Franklin, America says goodbye to a queen. Aretha Franklin, the queen of soul, whose music shaped the American songbook for over 50 years, died of pancreatic cancer in August. Franklin was a transcendent cultural figure of the 20th century. She sang for presidents and royalty and befriended high-profile leaders such as Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Zestie Jackson. Amid the global glitter and acclaim, she remained loyal to her adopted home, living in Detroit area for decades. Her marathon eight-hour funeral featured speakers like former President Bill Clinton and legendary record producer Clive Davis and included musical tributes from Stevie Wonder, Ariana Grande, and Jennifer Hudson. Reverend Al Sharpton called Franklin's career the soundtrack of the civil rights movement, saying, We don't all agree on everything, but we agree on Aretha. Uh, in Minnesota, Washington welcomed a younger, more diverse Congress. In a historic midterm season, Minnesota elected um, Yan Omar to the House of Representatives in November, when she will serve as one of the first ever Muslim women in Congress. Omar, a Somali-American former refugee, was elected alongside Rashida uh, Tlaib uh, in Michigan, Congress' the only other Muslim woman. And they weren't alone, as the 2018 elections were marked by groundbreaking first around the country. Deb Haaland and Sharice Davids will serve as the first Native American women in Congress. New York elected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will be the youngest woman in Congress. In Colorado, Jared Polis will be the first openly gay man to win a governor's race in American history. Uh, in Mississippi, searching for answers to the FBI reopens the Emmett Till case after six decades. 63 years had passed since Emmett Till's gruesome murder, but the FBI announced in July it was reopening the investigation into the black teen's historic death after receiving new information. Till was visiting relatives in money in 1955 when a white woman, Carolyn Bryant Donham, accused him of sexual harassment. Till's body beaten and shot was found three days later. Igniting a national debate about race and violence. Today, his family is still searching for the truth. We want the process to work and we want justice to prevail for Emmett. Deborah Watts, Till's cousin, told USA Today, they cannot just be forgiven. In Missouri, a duck boat tragedy, 70 people died, including nine from same family. In July, an amphibious duck boat capsized during a severe storm on Table Rock Lake in Branson, leaving 17 dead, including nine members of the same family. My heart is very heavy, said Tia Coleman, who lost her husband and three kids and was one of the surviving members of the Coleman family aboard the boat. Duck boats have a long history of serious accidents, leaving more than 40 people dead since 1999. As part of the investigation to the incident, the duck boat's captain was indicted on criminal charges last month. In September, T. Coleman filed a lawsuit against the boat operations and uh, manufacturer. In Montana, Border Patrol agent questions women for speaking Spanish. 
Two U.S. citizens at a northern Montana gas station were questioned by a U.S. Customs and Border Protection officer for speaking Spanish earlier this year. Uh, Ana Suda captured a video of the now viral encounter where she and her friend were asked for identification because of the language they were speaking inside a convenience store gas station about 35 miles south of the U.S.-Canada border. Suda accused the agent of racial profiling, responding to questions about the incident and whether or not to speak Spanish publicly. Acting CBP Commissioner Ronald uh, Vitello later said it's not something people should be concerned about if they're here legally. That's something you shouldn't say. Uh, In Nebraska, please forgive me, first ever uh, fentanyl execution in Nebraska. The first person who ever executed in the U.S. using fentanyl had three last words for his witnesses. I love you. Gary Dean Moore died August 14th from a fatal mixture, including the drug. The first such execution in the United States and Nebraska's first ever lethal injection of any kind. Moore 60 had faced death after killing two cab drivers in the summer of 1979. Death penalty opponents feared the mixture with fentanyl and an opioid more potent than heroin could have inflicted extreme pain had the substance not worked as planned. In a last statement, Moore apologized to his brother, a witness to the first murder. Please forgive me, Don, somehow. In Nevada, Dennis Hoff, a dead, bombastic, legal brothel owner, elected Nevada State Assembly. Nevada voters elected a legal pimp who had died several weeks prior in a November State Assembly race. Dennis Hoff was known as a flamboyant and notorious brothel owner, reality TV star, and later Republican politician. A rally for Hoff's campaign took place just hours before his October 16th death at the age of 72. The rally attracted high-profile conservative speakers, including former Marcopa County Sheriff Joe Aparo and Fox News personality Tucker Carlson. Following his death, Hoff remained on the ballot and cruised to an easy victory in his assembly district rate. His win kicked off in a lengthy and competitive process to appoint a living Republican to the seat. In New Hampshire, a mystery lotto winner can stay anonymous. A mystery New Hampshire lotto winner who has won a 560 million Powerball prize can remain anonymous. Anon- wow. That's a throwback. Remember when Trump said that like three months ago? Uh, an anonymous judge ruled in March the woman won the Powerball drawing January 6th and the state's attorney general office had argued that her identity must be revealed because she signed her name on the back of the ticket. The woman who filed a suit under a pseudonym, Jane Doe, said she made a huge mistake when she signed her real name before contacting a lawyer. The woman could remain anonymous. Had she established a trust, they had a trustee sign the ticket, her lawyer agreed. In October, the ticket for an even bigger prize, a whopping 1.537 billion Mega Millions jackpot was sold in South Carolina, but the prize was still unclaimed in November. Someone needs to really claim that. Um, New Jersey. Jersey Shore is back in a year of reboots. Snooki, the situation, the rest of the Jersey Shore's cast returned for a two-season reboot filled with plenty of duck face and nostalgia for a reality show that premiered in 2009. The cast parted in Miami Beach, Florida, and Las Vegas before heading to where else? Atlantic City. This time around, the cast dealt with more than just the cabs being here. Uh, as the show touched on issues like sobriety and parenthood and Jersey Shore wasn't the only reboot this year, the Ocean's franchise, A Star is Born, and a spooky new take on Spring of the Teenage which made all the way back to our screens in 2018. In New Mexico, searching for a missing child leads to grisly New Mexico compound. We are starving and need food and water, the message from inside a third world-like compound in New Mexico led authorities to a gruesome discovery. In August, 11 children were rescued amid a search for three-year-old Georgia boy Abdul uh, Ghani Wahaj, whose father allegedly abducted him. Police found the children with a group of heavily armed Muslims living on property they didn't own in a compound built from wooden pallets. Clear plastic tarps and dirt filled 
tires, the toddler's body was later found buried on the site. One of the rescued children told authorities the group leader believed the dead child would be reincarnated to launch an attack on banks, schools, and other corrupt institutions. Now five adults from the compound faced firearms-related charges and accusations that a group member had been training children in other military tactics. In New York, Trump Foundation to fold under pressure from state. Did President Donald Trump turn his Trump Foundation into political tool? Allegations officially support a claim that Mr. Trump intentionally used foundation assets for his private interest, knowing that it could not that it may not be found in the foundation's best interest. New York Supreme Court Judge Ceylon Scarpula said in a ruling last month that cleared the way for a civil lawsuit against the Trump Foundation. An investigation led New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood to allege Trump used the foundation a little more than a checkbook to promote his businesses and presidential campaign. The lawsuit spread an investigation of the organization's tax practice by the State Department, and the Trump Foundation agreed to dissolve in December. Add to that the alleged tax evasion and outright fraud by the Trump family as reported by the New York Times in October. The Times investigation sparked a separate state inquiry into Trump. In North Carolina, flooding from Hurricane Florence ravages North Carolina. Hurricane Florence brought catastrophic flooding to North Carolina and surrounding states in September, causing billions of dollars in property damage and shattering all-time rainfall and flood records in the Carolinas. More than 50 people died in the storm despite warnings from local authorities to evacuate. One North Carolina mayor stormed residents notify their next of kin if they plan to weather the storm. In the storm's wake, flooding cut off access to towns both large and small. After rain stopped, residents began to grapple with the devastation, including heavy losses to agricultural and animals. And more than, more than a million chickens died, fish carcasses needed to be hosed off of roads, and overflowing pigways created a disgusting, hazardous mess. In North Dakota, Miss America pageant embroiled in controversy. Miss North Dakota Kara Mund won the title of Miss America 2018, the first from her state to take the crown. But less than three weeks before the 2019 pageant this September, Bund publicly accused Miss America CEO Regina Hopper and chairwoman Gretchen Carlson of bullying and silencing her. Carlson, a former Miss America winner and Fox News host, said the organization host the organization lost 75,000 in potential scholarship funds as a result of the accusations. The Miss America organization had been taking public steps to the, in the name of female empowerment, but in fighting and controversy surrounding the pageant, had been making headlines ever since Carlson announced the ceremony would no longer feature a swimsuit competition for the first time in its 98-year history. After the overhaul, the pageant lost 1 million television viewers, and many were unhappy with the changes. In Ohio, they did this quickly, coldly, calmly, and very carefully. One family alleged massacred another in Ohio custody dispute. In November, Ohio authorities charged six family members in connection with one of the state's most heinous crimes, a massacre that left eight members of another family dead in four different locations. Authorities alleged that a child custody dispute motivated members of the Wagner family to murder Roden family members in April 2016, leaving some experts stunned that a custody dispute could lead to such a crime. They did this quickly, coldly, calmly, and very carefully, but not carefully enough, Pike County Sheriff Charles S. Reeder said of the charges. Four Wagner family members have pled not guilty to murder charges, while two other members face related charges. In Oklahoma, Sooners quarterback wins the Heisman and apologizes for an old homophobic tweet. Kyle Murray became the second Oklahoma quarterback in a row to win the Heisman Trophy, but then homophobic tweets from when he was 15-year-old resurfaced. Murray 21 now apologized and joined several other famous athletes thrust into the negative light in 2018 for previous social media activity. Milwaukee Brewers' Josh Hadner had racist, homophobic, and misogynistic tweets resurfaced. Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen saw racist tweets resurfaced from his teenage years ahead of the NFL draft. Villanova Final Four most outstanding player Dante DiVincenzo had a profane tweet surfaced right after he helped the Wildcats win a national title. 
In a world of entertainment, comedian Kevin Hart refused to apologize in December for past offensive tweets, and the resulting crisis led him to recuse himself from the hosting the Oscars. In Oregon, protesters who tried to occupy ICE were arrested as immigration backlash continued. Days before the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy sparked nationwide marches in June, protesters in Oregon were arrested after setting up a makeshift camp on the grounds of an immigration and customs enforcement facility in Portland. A few dozen protesters confronted police with profanities and chants such as no justice, no peace, no racist police. Federal police police arrested several demonstrators on June 28th, but protests and arrests at the location continued into July. The backlash was tied to calls by some progressives on the left to abolish ICE, a message that helped propel some Democrats, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to victory in the midterms. It would also help boost some Republicans who argued against uh, lax law enforcement. In Pennsylvania, the, na- the Nazis are here again. Eleven worshippers gunned down at the Tree of Life synagogue. Barry Werber hid in a storeroom. Judah Samet was four minutes late. Both survived what would become the deadliest attack in U.S. history, targeting American Jews when a gunman hurling anti-Semitic epithets uh, fatally shot 11 people on the Sabbath at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. Even before the attack, violence and harassment of Jewish people and institutions were rising sharply. There were at least 1,986 incidents motivated by anti-Jewish bias, including physical assaults, vandalism, and attacks of Jewish institutions. In 2017 in the United States, a 57% spike in incidents over the years before, according to the Anti-Defamation League. In Rhode Island, Mexican restaurants take heat for an anti-Trump 8645 shirts. Uh, a Mexican restaurant in Westerly got some backlash for selling t-shirts that says advocating impeaching Donald Trump. The shirts, which read 8645, were worn by restaurant staffers on election day. That was just one showing of how the man not on the ballot Trump was actually a big factor in the year's midterms. Trump didn't shy away from making the November 6th election a referendum on him, holding Hugh rally in string of red and swing states and telling crowds that a vote for the local Senate or House candidate was a vote for me. Midterms are often a judgment about the sitting president, but never in modern times did one campaign so did one campaign so hard to make sure it was. In South Carolina, deadly prison riots serve as a rallying cry for reform. Uh, really can't talk this morning. Deadly prison riots serve as a rallying cry for reform. A bully seven-hour riot at Lee Correctional Institute, a 1,785-bed maximum security prison in rural South Carolina, put the state's criminal justice system back in the natural spotlight. The April May left seven inmates dead and over a dozen others injured in what was considered the nation's deadliest prison riot in a quarter century. While state officials attributed the deaths to gangs, some blamed the outbreak of violence on living conditions. The 2010 criminal justice reform package allowed the state to close three maximum security prisons and slash millions of dollars in annual prison spending from its budget, making the state's prison system among the country's cheapest for taxpayers but also one of the deadliest from inmates. In August, a nationwide prison strike created in response to a brutal brawl aimed to raise awareness on the lack of mental health and rehabilitation programs in the state. In South Dakota, how a South Dakota man was tied to an alleged Russian spy. Vermilion native Paul Erickson made national headlines when accused Russian spy Maria Batuna, his business partner and roommate, was arrested and charged in Washington in July for allegedly seeking to exploit political groups to try and advance Russian interests. Once a political provocateur, Erickson had virtually disappeared from South Dakota's political scene in recent years, but in March 2015, Botina reached out to an American matching his description. Prosecutor said Erickson reportedly helped shepherd the alleged Russian operative to the Na- National Rifle Association, 
exerted with political group meetings, and Butina's goal to build a back-channel communication line between Russia and the United States appeared to show some success. Erickson allegedly provided contacts while a Russian official directed her. In December, Butina pleaded guilty to conspiring to act as an agent for the Kremlin while without registering in the United States. In Tennessee, 50 years since King's death, gone but never forgotten. In April, thousands of admirers of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gathered at his memorial to mark 50 years since the assassination of the civil rights leader, whose message of nonviolence continues to resonate across racial and religious divides in our nation. King was shot on April 4, 1968, as he stood on a balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. The night before his death, witnesses like Clara Esther heard King all but give his own eulogy, saying he had seen the promised land, but he may not get there with you. It's also right leader of question if the U.S. is moving backwards on race relations, saying if King was alive today, he'd be confounded by how little has changed. In Texas, U.S. troops at the Mexico border migrant caravans. The year in immigration. A large caravan of thousands of Central American migrants brought immigrant immigration front and center. The Trump administration vigorously pursued options to restrict or block outright migrants' ability to enter the country, including denying asylum. President Donald Trump also ordered thousands of active-duty troops to the U.S.-Mexico border over the summer. Trump enacted and then backtracked on an ill-fated zero-tolerance policy that led more than 2,500 family separations along the border. At the time, the eyes of the world focused on the small city of McAllen, a town with Border Patrol's busiest station for apprehending and detaining immigrants suspected of entering the country illegally. In 2018, the USA Today Network also won a Pulitzer Prize for its project, The Wall, a landmarked multi-platform project that examined Trump's campaign promised to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. <clears throat> in Utah, U.S. Olympians trained in Utah before meddling in Pyeongchang. Before Team USA brought home 23 medals from the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, its skiers and snowboarders trained hard in Utah. Park City plays home to U.S. Ski and Snowboarder Center for Excellence Facility, where star athletes like Lindsey Vaughn readied for the 23rd Games. While Vaughn, more widely considered the best female alpine skier ever, returned with just one bronze medal. Snowboarder halfpipe prodigy Chloe Kim and Sean White, perhaps the best to ever ride a board, both brought home gold, cementing of a snowboarding status from outcast to darling of the Winter Olympics. I've actually been to Park City. It's a beautiful place. I've gone there for work, and I was, I've been there in deep winter when it's awesome. I've been there in the summer when it's still pretty cool, but just surprisingly warm. Uh, Vermont. Vermont legalized marijuana. There are now 10 states with legal pot. In 2018, Vermont became the ninth state to legalize recreational marijuana and the first to do so through its own state legislator. Later in the year, Michigan became the 10th. Marijuana has become big business in other states that have legalized it, generating an estimated $1.6 billion in tax revenue. But Vermont had taken a different approach. The state will continue to ban marijuana sales to the general public, and the law leaves an open to a murky question about marijuana gifting in Massachusetts, which legalized marijuana in 2016. The state opened its first commercial pot shops in November. In Virginia, a uh, Amazon chooses Virginia and New York for two new headquarters. Alexa, what's national landing? Pretty soon the answer will be the site of one of of one half of Amazon's HQ2. The Jacknight chose the Northern Virginia region, straddling Arlington County in the city of Alexandria and Long Island City, New York as a center for its two new headquarters. The November announcement came after 14 months of attendance jockeying by more than 230 cities, vying for the honor of playing host to America's sec- Amazon's second headquarters. Amazon is expected to bring 25,000 high-paying jobs and invest $2.5 billion in each location. This has left many cities wondering what could have been and current residents wearing their neighbors might bring public transport nightmares and skyrocketing housing prices. 
Under CEO Jeff Bezos, who is now the richest person in the world, the net worth estimated of $166 billion, Amazon had become the second publicly traded company in the U.S. with a stock market value of above $1 trillion this year. In Washington, the year people decided plastic straws suck. The day of the plastic straws are numbered. In July, Seattle became one of the largest cities to ban plastic straws. Coffee giant Starbucks, headquartered in Washington State, said they would phase plastic straws out by 2020. And some chains like Red Lobster chose only to give out plastic straws upon request. The charges are part of a growing national trend to rid ourselves of what some perceive as environmental waste. The nonprofit group Sailors for the Sea said plastic straws are among the top 10 marine debris collected during an international coastal cleanup. We really seem to love them. America used an estimated 500 million single-use straws daily. According to EcoCycle, fortunately, we have plenty of eco-friendly alternatives. In West Virginia, there is no incentive to stay except this is home. West Virginia teachers strike. Educators in West Virginia went on strike for nine days in February and March, capturing the national spotlight enforcing school closures across the state with more than 30,000 teachers and support staff demanding pay raises. Governor Jim Gordon signed a contract agreeing to a 5% raise for state educators. But West, Wing, West Virginia teacher salaries are still more some of the lowest in the nation, according to the American Federation of Teachers. Meanwhile, teachers' discon, discontent across the country bubbled up this year as educators struggling to keep up with early days and pay for classroom supplies of their own pockets. From Arizona to Kentucky, similar protests broke out, demanding better pay and benefits. In Wisconsin, Wisconsin left shell-shocked by Trump's trade wars. Few states fell into the crossfires of President Donald Trump's trade war more than Wisconsin. It's been catastrophic. Rob Parmentier, CEO of Wisconsin-based boat manufacturers in October, retaliatory tariffs from China, Europe, and Canada, and Mexico came in response to Trump's tariffs on foreign steel and aluminum. Those trade barriers affected everything from interaction of farming, including the state's iconic dairy industry. Wholesale cheese and butter prices slumped in the summer as farmers faced an oversupply of milk and tensions with Wisconsin top two trading partners, Canada and Mexico. House Speaker Paul Ryan urged fellow Wisconsinites to be patient with the tariffs. Meanwhile, hundreds of dairy farms closed across the state, about 430 by September. That is ridiculous. Um, in Wyoming, Matthew Shepard's ashes find a home. 20 years after Matthew Shepard's death, his ashes found a home at the Washington National Cathedral. Shepard had become an international symbol of the violence LGBTQ people in America faced after his death in 1998, when two women savagely beat him and then tied him to a fence near Laramie. In their confession, the assailants said they targeted Shepard because he was gay. Since Shepard's death, same-sex marriage was legalized, as well as the ability of transgender Americans to serve in the military. But LGBTQ advocates say more work needs to be done. Violence gets us confused to this day, said uh, um, Right Rev. V. Gene Robinson, the openly gay former bishop who presided over a service remembering Shepard in October. In the District of Columbia, the Washington Capitals ended D.C.'s more than 20-year drought without a major pro sports title when the team took down the Vegas Golden Knights in the Stanley Cup Finals in June. It was pandemonium in the streets of the national of the nation's capital after the team's 4-3 victory in Game 5, followed by a boozy championship parade and rally on the National Mall days later. The win also marked the first Stanley Cup title in the franchise's 44-year history, in Caps great uh, Alex Ovechkin won the Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP, leading his team with 15 postseason goals. And that really does it for this year in review. I know that I had the media section, but I feel like I've been talking for over an hour, so I really should wrap this up. But I want to leave it on this. This is Christmas Eve. As you're listening, it's Christmas Day. And that leaves me this article. No government shutdown can keep NORAD from tracking Santa's journey on Christmas Eve. 
Now, the North American Aerospace Defense Command and its top-notch radar system will tell you when you can get your cooks and milk ready for Santa's arrival. For six years, the organization otherwise tasked with detecting aerospace activity has turned its attention to Santa Claus on Christmas Eve, tracking a sleigh and nine reindeer as they glide through the night to every child's house, well, the ones he's deemed good for the year. It's a tough task, but Norad said they are the only organization that has the technology, the qualifications, and the people to do it. The name of the federal government has shut down. Norad announced Friday that they'll continue to track Santa's journey. Military personnel and more than 1,500 volunteers will field calls on Santa's location and continue the decades-old tradition. Now, how it started. In 1955, when Colorado-based Sears Roebuck and Company misprinted a telephone number in an advertisement for a kid's wishing to talk to Santa... They sent dozens of children calling the Continental Air Defense Command Center instead. Colonel Harry Shoup didn't miss a beat. He and his staff spent the night answering calls and telling hundreds of kids where Santa was flying over during the night. Trying a tradition. In 1958, shortly after Norad was created, they picked it up and kept it going for decades. Every year, hundreds of volunteers stopped by the Santa Tracker Command Center to take calls from kids. Former First Lady Michelle Obama volunteered her help, answering Santa's questions for more than six years. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump also participated in phone calls in 2017. How they know where he is? NORAD's radar system is installed in more than 47 locations across Canada and Alaska. The agency satellites, more than 22,000 miles above Earth, use infrared sensors to track heat and help the organization track missile launches that may be directed at North America. But on Tender's big night, NORAD's radar system is on alert for his takeoff. Once Santa has kicked off his journey from the North Pole, the organization begins using its satellites. Infrared detectors to spot Rudolph's bright red nose and keep track of the big journey. To make sure he has a smooth trip, Norad's jet fighters often escort Santa and his night reindeer during his time over Canada and the United States. But how can you track Santa? Norad's Santa Tracker allows anyone in the world to see where Santa is flying during his journey, but the organization said it never knows when Santa will stop at each house and can only guarantee he'll pay his visit once children are asleep. His route his usually starts at the International Date Line in the Pacific Ocean and heads west. Norad says his first stops include the South Pacific, New Zealand, and Australia. From there, Santa flies up to Japan, through Asia, across Africa, Europe, Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and finally Central and South America. For those wondering how Santa manages to visit so many countries in one night, Norad Intelligence reports that Santa does not experience time the way we do. Norad says on its website, His trip seems to take 24 hours to us, but to Santa it might last days, weeks, or even months. And you can actually take a peek at Santa's journey by going to... Uh, probably just googling U.S. Santa Tracker or Santa Tracker 2018. You can call NORAD Track Santa Operations Center at one eight seven seven Hi NORAD. That is one eight seven seven four four six six seven two three, or send them an email at noradtracksanta at outlook dot com. One thing the organization won't have the answer to is how big jolly guy managed to slide down chimneys. NORAD says they're still trying to figure that out. And ending on a high note and a happy note, that'll do it for. Poor News, Episode 10. I am Andrew Poor. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays, and I will see you all in the new year.